Take a deep breath, take the higher road That's what they always say, as if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself, it's life ain't just a dream You make your own, so kick and scream The people will like with a never-ending force You never had the chance, so what you waiting for? The day has come, my friend, cause this is war Well, we're going to do something a little bit different today. I was approached by uh, a nurse who is in her BSN program about writing about a nurse that um, makes history, I think, uh, uh, or has made history or somebody they look up to. We'll find out a little bit more, but um, I want to welcome Sarah Grulick to uh, to the show Uh, because she is going to be interviewing me today. And, um, and I want to get started so that we have time to finish this. Sarah, do you want to just introduce yourself and and tell our listeners um, what the purpose of this paper is? Sure. My name is Sarah Grolick. I'm a registered nurse here in Washington State, originally graduated in Texas, but from Florida. Uh, So my husband's military move around a lot and I am completing my BSN right now through Chamberlain University. Um, One of the courses is called Nursing History. And I was asked to write about or interview, I guess, a nurse who had, uh, I felt like had impacted nursing history today. It was making her own history. So I immediately thought of you because of your partnership with Project Veritas and advocating for patients' rights and exposing exposing corruption and lack of transparency within the hospitals and the government. So uh, there'll be a series of questions that I'll end up asking you. And then um, I guess we can start off with, you can tell us a little about yourself just in case people don't remember who you are. Okay, well, this is exciting. Um, so I'm I'm so honored you chose to write about me. Extremely humbled when I received your email. Uh, but my name is Jody O'Malley, and I am a master's prepared critical care nurse uh, in Arizona. Um, many people know me as the Project Veritas vaccine whistleblower, um, like you stated. But by um, profession, before I blew the whistle, I was working in the ER, ICU, and hospital supervisor about 60% of the time. And now I have my own radio show, Nurses Out Loud. Uh, I'm an author of Rare Courage, uh, and I'm a motivational public speaker. Um, But prior to all of this, I've held uh, many positions in nursing. I started off delivering food trays to get my door, uh, my foot in the door in the hospital, uh, got my CNA, uh, PCT, and then med surge, ER, um, ICU, pre-op, PACU, chemotherapy, and biologics, and pain management, and detox registered nurse, or detox and recovery. That's awesome. Yeah. So if you could tell me some of your favorite memories of nursing school, what would you say they were? (laughs) Well, if I'm going to answer this honestly, uh, it was passing and graduating. 
Uh, I don't really have very many good memories from nursing school. Uh, it came at a time when my life was in turmoil. Um, I was in an abusive relationship that I had left. I had my son who was nine months old at the time. Um, so as a single mom and divorced with another child, uh, nursing school, like really had nothing on all of that. You know, I was a teenage mom at 16, um, and left my, uh, abusive relationship with my husband, uh, when my kids were three and six months and I was 20 years old. So when I say that it had nothing on that, <laughs> I mean that it was the most extremely stressful time of my life for a prolonged period, right? So um, I had to work full time on nights, so 12 hour shifts, and then go straight to school for four hours. And my children, my two older children at the time were 15 and 18 and very involved in sports. Um, and it was important for me to be there for them as well. Uh, but that that time of my life, um, not very good memories, um, but it was a, a big self-esteem and confidence builder. Um, but I, I only got through nursing school by the grace of God. I agree with that statement. <laughs> I agree <laughs> with that wholeheartedly. So how did your first year of RN practice compare to your nursing practice today? Well, my first year of being a nurse was highly focused on evidence-based practice. Um, I had obtained my BSN um, like six months after I had uh, graduated with my R RN. I did a concurrent enrollment program um, at Maricopa Community Colleges with um, NAU. And um, so evidence-based practice and being a patient advocate was first and foremost then. Uh, today, it, it, it seems like it's all about hospital policies corrupt governmental three-letter agencies who are guiding those policies and violating the patient's bill of rights. Um, so it's not like anything um, when I graduated from nursing school, and that was in uh, 2013 is when I graduated. All right. So what were some of the nursing practices that you used in your earlier years that are no longer used today? Informed consent and patient education. Uh, we, we saw that explode through COVID, right? Uh, yeah. Patients patients weren't given informed consent. We, we were completely violating all known science of early treatment. And not to mention that public health policy states that you don't lock down the healthy, right? Uh, you protect the vulnerable. And um, so even as a, you know, young nurse, like I, I didn't power down to bully doctors. Um, I always went in the patient room with the doctor and that would ensure that the patient verbalized what the doctor said and gave informed consent to any type of treatment or procedure and answered any questions before I exited my patient's room. Um, this way, I could plan out my day much easier. I received fewer call lights because the patient knew what to expect. And so today, I feel like nursing practice, it, like I said earlier, is based on policies and protocols, checking those boxes, right? Um, 
I think it was, I can't remember exactly the year, maybe 2015 or something after Obamacare, it, we went to pay, from paper charting to electronic charting. And with that, they just kept adding tasks for the nurse to do, which took the nurse away from the patient's bedside. And so I feel like the, the physician patient relationship has just been extremely violated. Doctors, yeah. yeah, doctors are paycheck employees like nurses. Yeah, it's deteriorated over the years, most definitely. So how, how have specific persons or events significantly impacted your practice over the years? Well, you know, there was one nurse who impacted my practice significantly. While I was a PCT in nursing school, I worked night shift in the intensive care unit and we had trauma med surge and cardiac um it was a large I believe about a hundred bed um icu and so that culture had a unit that was full of bullies um many of them had been there for oh i would say probably the average length of stay for a nurse was at least 10 years and, um, and, and they were well-oiled machines, right? They worked extremely well together. Um, you know, so I learned from a lot of them, but I learned most from a nurse named Rosie in particular. Um, I would always accompany her into her patient's room and volunteer to help her at night. Uh, on the night shift in the ICU is when baths are given. And so, you know, we change out the lines and, you know, really, um, it, it's a really great tool for an assessment, right? When you have a, a patient that's being bathed in bed. So I spent a lot of time with Rosie. Um, she was my reprieve for, from the bullying. Um, it wasn't just Rosie, though. There, there were other nurses that, you know, um, would call me in and say, can you help me with my patient? And that would take up a good hour or so of the shift. Um but like later when I blew the whistle, uh, I hadn't spoke to Rosie in years and, and she came out to one of my book signings and um, she told me how proud she was of me and that if she was in better health, she would be right alongside me fighting. Um, she's probably about 80 years old now, but once I became a nurse, I worked in the med surge unit and that was a great team environment, a lot of camaraderie and overall closeness that impacted my practice as well. I agree with that. I'm med surge right now. Yeah. You've got to have a lot of teamwork collaboration there. Yeah. Like how many patients do you guys have? On our unit, uh, it's around 30 patients. Thank goodness. But uh, they still try to, we're so understaffed, you know, the environment's completely changed. So we have maybe three, four nurses at night to a floor, no CNAs. Like it's bad. It's no bad. CNAs. Nope. We hardly have any CNAs. Uh, within the past, I want to say two months, we started to get maybe one or two a night, but then they end up floating them to another floor for multiple reasons. I mean, we've got so many SIs right now and one-to-ones for different reasons. And just, it's it's nuts. We The staffing crisis is just getting worse. So I'm hoping it improves later. So you have about 30 patients to three nurses. Yeah, we, uh, so we were taking at times we're taking seven a piece and we'll get into more of that later, but we got legislation involved. Uh, 
to try to start a staffing bill, kind of like the one they had in California, which I don't really think is going to work at all. I mean, you're basically just saying, hey, let's have a staffing committee that submits our matrix to the DOH. Well, that's what we were doing now already. So um, mm-hmm. we're going to need some major big changes uh, in this country or we're just going to head into a downward spiral like we are doing. Yeah. So, well, yeah, yeah I, I hope um, it seems like we're getting through some of these questions pretty quickly. So I'd love to hear uh, your experience on the when we come back from break. Um, oh, sure. Okay. And then uh, another question was, how have you impacted the nursing practice of others? Oh, well, um, over the years, I've received many emails and messages from CNAs and other staff members that I, I worked with telling me that they joined the nursing pre- profession because of me, um, which is really humbling. Um, the drive for many of them was seeing uh, what a staunch patient advocate I was. I received many kudos and awards for patient advocacy. At that time, um, it was honored to be a patient advocate. Um, and so, you know, they, they knew I wasn't just there for a paycheck. Um, and it was extremely touching to hear them say, I want to become a nurse like you, you know? So most of the impact I've made in the present, I believe was due to upholding my oath and ethical principles and standing um, by evidence-based practice, which for our listeners, that's using the best available science that we have. Um, not made up like Fauci science type stuff. So, um, but when I noticed in the summer of 2021 that we were still not providing early treatment and that goes against all known protocols, um, except the NIH Fauci protocol of just mm-hmm. remdesivir, um, which at that time was experimental. Um, and I don't even understand how that drug got approved. Um, but I secretly reported what was happening in the federal hospital for the Native Americans and released it virally to the world. So since then, I've received thousands of emails, messages, posts about how I have impacted people worldwide. And I did it because they were violating patient rights, you know, like having an advocate at the bedside, informed consent forced isolation with faulty tests, asymptomatic transmission, um, natural immunity, you know, et cetera. And so I knew the only way to, you know, touch the hearts and minds of people was to show them. And I had heard a quote after I blew the whistle and it really resonated with me. Um, But it said, if you want people to know the truth, tell them. If you want people to love the truth, tell them a story. So I figured I would tell them the story of what was happening in the hospital and let them decide for themselves since um, censorship, you know, mainstream media, we can't trust our our journalists anymore. You know, many mm-hmm. people are going to alternative media sources, um, the boots on the ground, Kind of like, you know, with James O'Keefe, with his O'Keefe Media Group, right? Arming the citizens with um, mm-hmm. video cameras and, and keeping people like on on alert, you know? Um, it's like integrity. It's like, what do you do when nobody else is looking type thing? So I, I believe that's probably the biggest impact that I've had. 
Yeah, I think the the main thing that the mainstream media is pushing is that it's a lack of integrity when you arm people with cameras because it's invading that person's privacy. But really, we're just holding them accountable to the things that they should have been doing to begin with. But I just think it's funny that, you know, we've twisted this this narrative like that. So, yeah, no, exactly. It's like. You know, I, I think another thing that I people really relate to me is that I'm authentic. You know, I'm real. Um, I'm, you know, what you see is what you get. And so I, I live my life that way when I'm talking to my friends or, you know, talking on camera, essentially. So it's like, you know, don't do things that, you know, you want to be found out about. It's like even raising my kids. You know, I was always just honest with them um, as to my life and, you know, didn't hold myself up to this, like, you know, standard of like, I'm the parent kind of thing. I do no wrong and I know what's best for you. You know, I let them know, you know, I've done wrong and th- and this is the consequences that I've had from it, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Oh, geez. I thought I had my phone on airplane mode. My bad. Okay. So what contributions have you made to the nursing and areas of leadership, provision of care and or evidence-based practice? Oh, um, well, you know, in, in the hospital, when I was in med surge, I, I did for my BSN uh, project was rounding with the doctors and improving, um, like lessening the call lights, like I said earlier, uh, so we had a, a little group of us that um, did that evidence based on what does your day look like? Is it less stressful? Um, are the patients satisfied and taken care of and not, you know, on their call lights? I mean, because like you said, you know, if you, you don't have CNAs to help you answer those call lights. And so I, I believe our floor had 18 rooms and they, they were starting to double book them if they needed to. So maybe even say 30 patients on the floor or something at any given time. But we had a CNA for each hallway. So we had two CNAs um, that were helping out. And so that, that was crucial um, to have that. So, and then in my hospital, I, um, at the last hospital that I was at, I, I helped change the schedule with the surgical department. And, um, and that's a big thing to do at, at a federal level. Um, and that was to honor the nurses that, you know, there were many nurses that didn't want to work eight hour shifts, you know, and they would stagger them in, you know, coming in at 5 a.m. or 9 a.m., 11 a.m., um, type, type hours. And so I was, um, helped to change that. So nurses got the shifts that they wanted. So they had a good work-life balance. That's awesome. Um, what challenges in today's nursing can be improved using lessons from the past? Well, I think the biggest challenges uh, that nurses face today is honoring their oath and their ethical principles. I mean, the dissenting critical thinkers left nursing, many of us. Many of us either were pushed out or left uh, the profession altogether. Um, Like Nurse Beth, who's one of the hosts on Nurses Out Loud, she left the OR department after almost 20 years. And she's doing a completely different profession like marketing. And um, 
So, yeah, you know, they, they, you know, none of us wanted to be coerced into participating in an experiment and we didn't agree with um, the lack of informed consent. You know, many of us saw that the injection was failing. Uh, many people were coming up positive and um, even though that test is experimental too, right? Um, so, yeah, you know, th there was a lot of things that we were seeing with our eyes that um, media wouldn't cover. Um, our hospital administrators didn't even want to hear about. Um, but they're, you know, it's like now we're not there for for these new grads. And and that is, I, I, I'd love to, I can't wait to talk to you about that because I think for those older nurses and experienced nurses, they taught me so much. And now you have these new grads who are assuming, you know, charge nurse roles with only a few months of hands-on nursing experience. I mean, we have to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's me. It's really That's my life. You're talking about my life right now. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. I yes. haven't finished residency. I was eight, eight, seven months in, maybe six months in, I want to say maybe max eight months in, but that's whenever I became a charge nurse. Eight months after graduating. Yes, ma'am. And when, and what year did you graduate? <laughs> well, I graduated in 2020, but I didn't start working until uh, the next year after that. And then it was like six months into my residency program at the med surge unit. And then I became charge nurse on an overflow unit. Over wow. So we Sink. would have everything. There was no dedicated specialty, ortho, neuro, GI. I mean, you name it, we saw it, we got it, we did it. That's insane. Like it, it is. It it it's it's just crazy. I mean, like you said, we had so many nurses that graduated during COVID who did not receive the same training. And yep. and and it's like these experienced nurses, like we're not there for them anymore, you know. And, yep. and, and they don't know what, like, you don't know what you don't know, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And, and it's like, and many people are just carrying out these hospital policies that are not for the betterment of the patient. And so I, I think, you know, we'll talk more, Sarah, because I think we need to create a massive campaign to teach yep. these new nurses um, working in the hospital today that their duty is to the patient and the community not yeah. to the administrators and the doctors. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, like nurses work in conjunction with these people, but our license is our own. And yeah. for every action, we must remember that if we're called in front of the nursing board, the response never is, I was following orders. Mm -hmm. Did you did you hear that in nursing school? All the time. I hear it now. I hear yes. it now. Yes, yeah. but they but they want us to follow orders or else they push us out. And yeah, so it's all um, on us. It's all end. on us. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people don't realize is that as nurses, we hold our own license separate from a doctor or the hospital. And yep. if we do something wrong, we're called into question on that. And we could, you know, have criminal charges against us. And, and that's so, big right now too. That's big to start suing the nurses. Is it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you remember that nurse that recently she gave the wrong med? I think she gave like vancuronium or something. 
members. Oh, she yes. Uh-huh. And now that that set a precedence for everybody else to say, oh, I can sue the nurse. That might be easier to touch the nurse than the doctor. So now everybody in our facility was encouraged to go get, well, I mean, you should do this anyways in RN. And if you don't know that, go get you some uh, insurance to cover that. <laughs> yeah. You I gotta mean, have something like for a, your license. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's only like a hundred dollars a year or something. It's, it's do not it. much. Yeah. Do it in today's society. You have to do it now. We're, wow. we're at risk more than the doctors are for getting sued right now. And they're the ones that put in the orders, you know? Yeah. Right. But if we follow them, like the response, like we said, it should never be, oh, I was following orders. You know, um, it should be, I followed the nine principles of nursing ethics mm-hmm. and evidence-based practice. And so, yep. you know, we, we do, we need to care for one another and put politics aside. Um, absolutely. It's going to be hard for a lot of people. <laughs> to it do is. Right. Because propaganda at the nursing station um, changed the culture of the nursing station. And I think yep. that happened across the world. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, having said that guys, you know, it reminds me of TWC, our sponsor, um, you know, check them out, go to America out loud dot shop and you will see the sponsors or really, you know, they're, they're kind of like family for the nurses or for the America out loud talk radio. Um, we only have, um, a few flagship products and TWC is one of them, the wellness company. You may hear Dr. McCullough talk about them, um, but I really like their freedom from pharma program. And that allows you to have an assessment um, with uh, the pharmacist who goes over all of your medications and then talks to the doctor and then the doctor um, reaches out to you to start de-prescribing. I think so many people are on pharmaceuticals that they do not need to be. And um, we really need to get back to the mind, body, um, spirit, the holistic person. And, you know, the if we can, you know, avoid going to the hospital these days, I never thought I'd say that in America, but um, that is really the last place we want to be. So we'll come back from break and we'll continue uh, Sarah uh, interviewing me. This is this is fun. We'll be right back. It's time in this The pandemic may be over for some. But millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution, the miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. 
For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. It was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me. You are listening to Nurses Out Loud, and I am your host, Nurse Jody O'Malley. Uh, we are on air, guys, five days a week, uh, live on iHeartRadio on a, or on our world-class app, um, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Download that and, um, and hear 24-7 um, news, right? We have so many different people on this platform from scientists to researchers, doctors, nurses, attorneys, constitutionalists. Um, there's such a variety um, of speakers and um, show hosts on this platform. So download America Out Loud Talk radio app and um, and start tuning into that daily, then mainstream news. Although I believe a lot of people stop listening to them. But anyway, uh, Sarah is interviewing me for her uh, nursing school project. And um, we'll, we'll continue on. All right. So who is your favorite famous nurse from nursing history? Oh, that would have to be Florence Nightingale. Uh, you know, because she was condemned by so many um, and not taken seriously by others. Uh, when she, you know, implemented hand washing, right? She was carrying, I, I believe it was in the Kremity War or something. Um, the name kind of passes me, but um, she she just know, n- noticed that the conditions um, were not sanitary. And she felt that if people, you know, um, were clean and um and, you know, they, they would heal better, right? And rest better and sleep better and eat better. And um, I, I just love like, you know, just that the hand washing, right? So she encouraged the doctors and nurses to wash their hands before she touched patients. And she was totally condemned for that. But um, Florence Nightingale. Yeah, that's a good one. Also yeah. mine. I think oh, in yeah? the Nightingale Oath, she mentions one of the biggest parts of the oath that I remember still was, uh, and many people don't know, nurses do take oaths too, uh, mm-hmm. is to never give a 
harmful medication or, you know, intervention to a, to a patient knowingly. So I thought that was pretty cool that even back then she recognized the need to identify what might be harmful and to prevent it, you know, from even happening in the first place. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. She was, um, she was a badass for sure. <laughs> she, was. she was for lack of a better word. <laughs> yes. For lack of a better word. Sorry. That's the word that came to mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was though. So how do you use that uh, famous nurses examples in your own practice today? Well, I'm, I think, you know, no matter what she was told by her family or community, she pressed on because the patient was at the center of her care. And this is true in my own nursing practice. Um, the patient, the community is at the center. And that's why, you know, I recorded and, um, you know, actually had, it wasn't like I had this whole breath of science and stuff, but, you know, I was noticing safety signals and people weren't noticing them. Like I said, I, I believe they were brainwashed through propaganda. And so, um, you know, Florence Nightingale is uh, featured in our marketing promo for our radio show. But at the at the end of every show, we end with shine your light in the darkness, you know, as as homage to the lady with the lamp. Yeah, that's what she was, lady with the lamp. Right. And and I think that would probably be good to talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, she she went and did rounds on patients as well. And so mm-hmm. she had her lamp and um, was always looking and rounding on her patients, which night and day, yeah, mm-hmm. night and day, night and day. Yeah. So based on your nursing past, what advice would you give to the new nurses today? Huh. Well, um, search your heart. If you're not in this to offer like a healing hand to your patients and community, then leave. Uh, I, I know so many people that actually graduated from nursing school or even dropped out, you know, in, in, you know, after a semester or two, because they're like, I don't want to do this. You know, um, I think a lot of people get into nursing um, for the wrong reasons. And that's like a schedule, the income the ability to be flexible. Um, but, you know, patients deserve our utmost care and they should be the reason why we become nurses. So, you know, I, I say make sure that you're taking care of yourself and ensure that you have a healthy work-life balance. I mean, it, it certainly doesn't sound like that's what's happening right now. Um, you're not the first nurse I've I've heard this from and and I think somehow, like, you know, there needs to be, you know, I've actually toyed with the idea of having a community for nurses that we can just talk, you know, maybe a couple times a month and just hear what's going on there and see how we can assist one another um, or even my experience that's no longer there. But, you know, there you have to have a work-life balance. Um, you cannot be overwhelmed uh, with taking on this e- extreme patient load as though it's your duty. You know, it's a duty of the hospitals to, to you know, have adequate staffing. You know, it's like, did they not think about this before they, they kicked us out? 
you know, and I mean, not me. I, I was, I don't think I was at threat for losing my job for the injection. Um, but, you know, so many nurses did and, you know, uh, yeah. So, you know, when you're not at work, don't answer your phone. Really, truly don't answer your phone. Turn it off, make it a practice not to answer it, you know, because as hospital supervisor, um, I know, I knew the nurses that I could call on and say, I need you to come in. And they would do it. They would drop everything and they would come in. And maybe some of them working four, five, seven, eight shifts in a row, they would come in because my team needs me. Well, you know, if your team isn't being created by the administrators who are hiring people, um, then, you know, then what are you left with? I mean, you know, like a pinch hitter that comes in, I guess, like, you know, uh, the, the manager should have to come in and help out. Um, so, you know, let, if you're, if you have a, a call from the hospital, uh, when you're off a shift, um, let it go to voicemail and, um, but make it a practice not to answer it for sure. And, and like I said, don't feel bad about doing that, but let it go to voicemail and then, and then decide, um, so, yeah, like, like I said, there, there were a lot of nurses that weren't on my call list because I knew that they weren't going to come in. I just, you know, we knew, like, don't ask them to come in because they're not coming in and you shouldn't get dinged for that. Right. Um, and, and make them offer more incentive for you to come in. You know, if, if people are, if nurses are answering the call and coming in and, um, and they're not getting any incentive, like bonus pickup shifts. They're, they're not going to offer it because you have those nurses that do it every single time. And, you know, they probably complain and, and they're not very nice to work with anyway. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's the way I would answer that. That's some good advice. So regarding the COVID-19 pandemic as part of nursing history, do you think any of our government organizations Healthcare institutions, the WHO, the Department of Health, among many other organizations, CDC, whatever you can think of, NIH, at any time, lie to the American public? And if yes, what exactly did they lie about? <laughs> yeah, they they lied. They lied to the public about effectiveness of masks. Um, that was apparent when Fauci and the Surgeon General came out in, in February 2020 and say, we're not going to be a nation of mask wearers. Masks do nothing to stop the coronavirus. Um, but then they implemented it and um, they did it, in my opinion, to make people fearful because it was a sign of fear on, on either fear or compliance, right? Um, and so, you know, they, they pushed that narrative of asymptomatic transmission um, to help boost up their fear campaign. Uh, saying that you could be sick and not know it and pass it on to people from a faulty PCR test that never should have been implemented to begin with. Um, you know, that the, the, it was just a complete violation of public health policy. And then they implemented the experimental PCR testing that had a high false positive rate. And, and why? Again, I mean, to me, it was just clear as day watching this all unfold. Um, you know, they, they said, you're going to wear a mask because you can kill grandma. 
And then we're going to isolate you because you could be sick and not know it. And then we're going to test you with an experimental test that's not intended to be diagnostic to push up the numbers. And then we're going to have uh, a doctor be able to presume you positive if you have diarrhea or a cough or a headache or a fever, um, you know, or belly aches, uh, body aches. I mean, every single symptom, if you had two or more of those, which a lot of people have that on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. um, they could presume you positive. Um, You know, we even had the World Health Organization that came out in um, the fall, winter of 2020, saying that they did not recommend using remdesivir. So, So why did the United States use this as the only approved NIH protocol, pretty much for everyone, right? We had some monoclonal antibodies, but those were hard to get a hold of. Um, and we have the the worst uh, COVID death numbers of any developed nation. And so, you know, for me, I believe this was all done to implement experimental vaccination, uh, which we can't even call it that. And and let's not us forget about natural immunity. There has never been one virus um, that we have had that they said if you recovered from it and you had it, um, that that you were fine. Um, you know, um, but they did that to implement the the vaccine, which was failing and from the very beginning and harming from the very beginning. And so like the billionaires, you know, um, all these globalists, they, they made a ton of money while they shut down small businesses and left the big box stores open. We shut down churches and schools and all of this was unnecessary. There was an abundance of evidence to prove that. You know, then we had the Cochrane study come out, which is the gold standard and showed that masks were not effective. But we already knew that. Because we had OSHA whistleblowers, military whistleblowers, like industrial hygienists, like Kristen, Megan Kelly, Tammy Clark, uh, Stephen um, Hetty, uh, Tyson Gabriel. Um, we, we had several of them um, come out speaking out, but mainstream media wouldn't expose that because they were funded by Big Pharma. Um, Kennedy actually talks about that in his censorship hearing. Um, you know, that was recent. So this is because like mainstream media, like I said, are funded by big pharma and they didn't want to lose that big pharma money. And so, you know, one of the biggest lies I think the American public was told was that the vaccines were safe and effective and they had no data to prove that, you know, Mm -hmm. Pfizer came out in their study saying that they didn't even test for transmission or infection. It was just hospitalization. And that was on a group of pretty healthy people. And so, um, you know, we, we just had nurses, doctors, media outlets just repeating safe and effective. Do your part, get vaccinated. Then you can visit your family over the holidays again. Um, you know, many Americans, nurses and doctors refused to take the injection the next year. And then they began coercing them um, and to taking it, hold, dangling their paycheck um, over their head and, um, you know, risk losing their jobs. So, I mean, I think the conclusion was that most people were coerced 
discriminated against, bullied, and harassed to participate in an experiment so that they could feed their families. And it was a complete violation of ethical principles, our constitutional rights as sovereign citizens as well. Yeah, I agree with every single word that you just said. So at that time, where were you working during the COVID pandemic? And when you became, when you became, I guess, essentially the HHS whistleblower, and then what was your company doing that made you ultimately want to expose what you're witnessing there? So I worked for Phoenix Indian Medical Center, and it's a federal hospital run by the Indian Health Services under the Health and Human Services Division for the Native Americans. Um, who, by the way, lost seven years off of their lifespan. Um, to compare it, most people, I think it was like four-tenths of a year. So the Native Americans were just devastated from it. Um, I, I witnessed emergency room doctors try to prescribe ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And in October of 2020, they even brought in the highest um, cited cardiologist, epidemiologist, Dr. Peter McCullough, to speak to our pharmacy and therapeutics board. And every single one of them on that board, there were like 20, 30 names refused it unanimously. And that was based on a study published by Nature magazine, which was retracted a few months later. Uh, but never received any media attention. And, um, and you know, lots of doctors don't research our, you know, upcoming studies. They just don't. They were taking orders, especially in my hospital, where a lot of them were in, in the management positions were the United States Public Health Commission Corps, and uh, they're a branch of the military, so they're used to taking orders. Um, but, you know, like I saw people coming in with increased sickness after taking the injection that I'd never seen in 2020. And, you know, in nursing, um, we, every year we have to do these health stream modules that keep us up to date. Um, you know, on, on all the things that we need to be up to date on. And there was no, there was no health stream, uh, given to nurses prior to the release of this vaccination. So, you know, many nurses and doctors, unless you're working in pediatrics, they don't typically inject the public, right. Other than like flu shots or tetanus. Um, so this told me that they did not care about the data, um, And we were in stage three clinical trials when this was released to the population. And the nurses were never given any information or direction about adverse or potential side effects to look out for and to report it to VAERS. So as as hospital supervisor, several times in my report, I would ask them to implement the question at triage. Were you vaccinated? If so, when? So that it would prompt the nurses and doctors to go down that road and ask that question. And so in the summer of 2022, after I had followed the successful treatment um, of ivermectin in my own community and hydroxychloroquine and following the FLCCC, the Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance, American Frontline Doctors like Stella, Stella Emanuel, um, and other brave doctors that were prescribing that medication, I knew this drug was at least safe enough to try it. 
And so I researched the definition of an EUA vaccine. And in the definition, it says that experimental use authorization can only be given if there is no safe, adequate, available alternative. It didn't even have to be effective. It just had to be safe and available. And it was, um, it was both of those drugs are generic at this time. So nobody really makes any money off of them. And, um, you know, I started noticing that people who had contracted um, uh, COVID gotten sick, let's say naturally in 2020, and then took the vaccine, were getting sick. And um, so by the summer of 2022, these people were in worse condition. And my colleague who was coerced into taking the injection along with two others became sick two weeks later, and she was in desperate need of help. And asked me if I could help her get those medications that I had been talking about for over a year at that point. And after calling the doctor into my office with another nurse who was caring for my colleague, uh, we began pleading with the doctor. Um, well, I pleaded with the doctor to, she told me that the medication was controversial. And so I brought her into my office and respectfully said, um, you know, doc, being controversial is not a reason not to practice medicine, but is it safe enough for the patient to try it? And, um, and the nurse who was in the room with me um, called me soon after that meeting and said that the doctor ordered it. Um, but then a few minutes later, the nurse called me back and said that pharmacy had blocked the medication. And so I called the pharmacist into my office and this was my first recording. Um, I began to gather videos after that showing um, a patient in his early 30s that um, took his second dose on a Tuesday and was in the emergency room on a Saturday diagnosed with myocarditis, pericarditis and congestive heart failure with no significant medical history at all. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, it, it just, it, it was a lot like the, the sickness I witnessed in many people along with the misinformation, disinformation, malinformation and censorship at the hands of our government officials made me do something extreme. Um, and that's why I released the videos to the world. I needed to tell the public what I saw because informed consent was not being given. I mean, how could it, right? Um, the inserts and inside the vaccine packages were intentionally left blank. And the public knows today that Pfizer was not injecting the public with the, their monovalent vaccine, but they pushed out the bivalent vaccine now, which again has limited data. So yeah, the the original vaccine um, that they've they've disposed of, they they've done away with. And I don't even know if people really realize that, um, but they didn't um, try to get it to be um, approved. And so um, now we have the bivalent vaccine, and again, still limited data and testing, and no one overseeing it. So. You know, the safety signal that I saw um, that I came out with in September 21, the blood clots and myocarditis are now listed on VAERS' side effects. 
And um, at the time, I didn't know bears was such an antiquated system um, until I came across the Harvard study saying that um, only 1% of vaccines are being reported. And with COVID, I, I believe it's less than that because so many people are just blinded and they don't want to know that they got an experimental injection inside of them. Um, so I don't know if that was a, a long answer, but yeah, um, I needed to have the uh, the public to decide. And, and, you know, now we're seeing proof of this. So how did you find Project Veritas and ended up choosing James O'Keefe's company to expose it to? So in the summer of 2021, um, I had followed several whistleblowers um, at that time, or I found their videos, Ivory Hecker, April Moss, um, David Johnson, um, and uh, Nurse Erin, um, Nicole Surintech from American Frontline Nurses. And I had found them and I was like, you know what? Um, I, I just saw a sense of urgency to expose this. And before more lives were harmed, and and I knew that uh, James O'Keefe, uh, they they never lost a lawsuit, and they never settled, and um, and that they had the reach, and so this story would go out to as many people as possible. Um, I couldn't go to HHS because I had already tried to get some things implemented, and I knew they were the ones behind this. So I relied on public opinion and put it in the hands of the public to decide and trusted God to that I was living in his will for my life. And, you know, and, and on top of it, we're mandatory reporters by law. So I stood by my oath and my ethical principles um, and advocated for the patients. All right. Were you nervous when the day came to expose the truth to the public? And were you worried about retaliation during that time? <laughs> I was so nervous. Um, I, I was very nervous. I prayed about it for such a long time. Uh, but I had science and ethics, um, on my side as well as, uh, feel like I was being led by God to do this. So, you know, I, I had a come what may type attitude. Uh, I wasn't afraid whatsoever about the opinions of my peers. I trusted in God and I put all my faith in him and not man. All right. What did you hope would happen after you exposed the company that you were working for at the time? And did you remain in touch with anyone there? I know you said the doctor that was featured in the video by Project Veritas, you don't really keep in touch with that much. But uh, how did that affect your ability to work as a registered nurse in the aftermath too? So essentially, after my story was aired, I was put on administrative leave for two weeks and then put on investigative leave and they investigated me for six months uh, and then notice leave for about another six months. And um, and I had exceptional ratings and my performance reviews and yearly um, evaluations. But I was afraid at one point that they would falsify things against me. But again, I put my faith in God to handle it and to see me through. I did have to go in front of the Arizona State Board of Nursing. And um, they ordered me to undergo a formal ethics evaluation. And so I, I did, and I was deemed 100% ethical in my disclosure. So my RN license is still clean and intact. Um, but, you know, what I know about the corrupt um, sick care system, uh, I, I just can't go back to that. I liken it to being in, being in a bad relationship. And um, is it comfortable? Yeah, sure. 
it's comfortable because, you know, change is uncomfortable many times. So, but, um, again, I'm willing to, um, live in the will of God and not my own. All right. Do you believe what, what you did? Oh, yeah. I was going to say, this is, uh, the last question. Cause we're almost out of time. Yeah. Do you believe that what you did in the end was ethical and would you do it again if you had the opportunity? Oh my gosh. Hands down. Yes. Yeah. There's not been a moment in time that I ever wished I hadn't done it. Um, my relationship with the Lord has grown by leaps and bounds because of it. And I feel very confident, like I said, that I'm walking in his will and not my own. And so, you know, when I believe when you stand on the side of truth um, and you do it in love, you'll never fail. And so when you cower down uh, or make deals with evil, um, things that go against your integrity and your morals, you're going to fail every single time. So don't ever compromise. Know that God is, you know, whatever God is laying on your heart, um, trust that it is good and right and just and um, and go with it. But unfortunately, Sarah, thank you so much, but we're out of time here. Um, you know, like I said, listen to Nurses Out Loud. We are on air five days a week. And, um, and it's our duty to shine lights into this darkness and, and expose the purveyors of propaganda. Um, until next time, be safe, be well, and God bless.